because we have a big responsibility. So I would say good luck for us because we really need to get this job done. We need to improve the deliverables of the SDGs, of the Paris Agreement's targets, uh, and with the people-centered like centered approach. The Democracy in Practice series by Club de Madrid gathers the voices of democratic former presidents and prime ministers who leverage their individual and collective leadership experience to strengthen inclusive democratic practice today to better deliver towards the well-being of people around the world. Welcome to Club de Madrid podcast series, Democracy in Practice. You're listening to the first episode of this series in 2022, which commemorates the International Day of Multilateralism and Diplomacy for Peace. Today, Tanila Turk, professor of international law, human rights expert, former president of Slovenia and current president of Club de Madrid, will be discussing some of the hottest topics on the multilateral agenda with Ilona Zabo de Carvalho, Brazilian political scientist and civic entrepreneur, co-founder and executive director of the Garapé Institute. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has just appointed both of them to the high-level advisory board on effective multilateralism, along with 10 other leaders and experts. Without further delay, let's get into the conversation. Welcome. Uh... Uh, Mrs. Ilona Sabo de Carvalho, um, we in Club de Madrid are very uh, happy to have you with us on, in a conversation. And I must start by saying, you know, we are very curious. Uh, we are people with uh, some decades of experience in various areas of political life, including in multilateral life. And we are always interested to learn more about new initiatives that are emerging, new experience that has been gained in recent past, new visions that, that you have. I think that this all belongs to kind of intergenerational friendship and exchange. I think we, we have to understand that people who are doing new things now are preparing for doing those new things even better in the future. So I'm interested in learning to start with a little bit about your work. Thank you so much, President Turk. It's a great pleasure and honor to be here talking to you today. So I'm Ilona Zabo. I'm a, I call myself a civic entrepreneur. I work for uh, around 20 years uh, in the not-for-profit sector after a short time in the financial markets. So uh, 10 years ago, I co-founded what uh, today is uh, the Garapé Institute, which is a an independent think-and-do tank focused on the areas of human, climate, and digital security and its consequences for democracy. So in this sense, I think we have a, a lot in common with the, the frame of the, the Club de Madrid. So our objective at Igarapé is to propose solutions and to build partnerships for global complex challenges. So through research, development of new technologies, communication, and the uh, influence uh, try to, trying to improve public policy. So the Institute works with governments, private sectors, civil society to, to design data-based evidence-informed solutions. So we are a not-for-profit, as I said, uh, based uh, our headquarters in, it's in Rio de Janeiro, 
but our operation transcends uh, local, national, and even uh, regional uh, boundaries. So the Garapé has today professionals in around five countries, uh, many, many cities uh, within Brazil, uh, partnerships in over 20 countries. So we we always tended to say that uh, we wanted to pick the best of Brazil to the world and the best of the world to Brazil. So we, we were born like that and we keep this spirit. Very good. Now you mentioned something very interesting. You said that you are a think tank doing thinking and doing. And that's very interesting. I see uh, throughout my entire life, I was uh, a bit um, uh, uncertain about what does it mean think tank. I mean, the tank aspect was a bit difficult for me. You know, I know about tanks which are weapons, really, you know, heavy weapons. And I know about other tanks which contain gasoline or contain something else. <laughs> so think tanks was not something that, that I uh, kind of easily understood. And I was very interested when I heard some time ago, not too long ago, that you know the classical think tank approach is now being kind of uh, uh, upgraded or changed, developed into something new, linking more to the practical challenges and also working with practical problems. Now, my question is, is, is um, can you give us an example of Igarape doing that? I mean, you know, linking thought and work, you know, and then working and thinking at the same time is never easy. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that you have interesting experience in that regard. No, sure. And it's a, it's a very good question because many people just take it for granted. But what we do is that through research, we identify problems, issues that we'd like to solve. And could be through developing some technology and applying together, for example, with partners yeah. at the government sector. So I'll give an example. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm from Rio de Janeiro and there we always had the problem of police brutality. Yeah. So we knew that our police were was like under-trained. They didn't have the tools uh, to really uh, work, let's say, in a more efficient and respecting you know, human rights, the rule of law. So together with them, we did an assessment of how to modernize, how to improve their uh, own work. And we just listed a few projects. One of them was a very simple one internationally, but many countries in the South don't have, which is basically... To, to allow them to have tools for hotspot policing and training for that. Like more or less in the model of New York Comstock, where you have like a, a management plan, but also the technology, the technology tool to allow you to just um, position your police, your resources into places that you know are the hot areas like, to prevent crime. So we've done the whole, let's say, uh, design of this process, uh, help with the implementation, the training. Until today, we help uh, to develop that uh, technology and like what comes after to improve their work. But we've done this also uh, with the subnational governments on violence prevention, uh, you know, with the um, basic also digital visualizations, data visualizations that would take complex data and explain in an easier way that could facilitate decision makers in terms of understanding the links between sometimes security and development, risk factors. So we keep trying to design tools that are, are applied to answer the questions that we find that uh, could be the knots in the research to add some value, right? I mean, we, of course, we're a think tank, we're not government, but we try to contribute to like leveraging, like uh, knots or leveraging solutions that could uh, then uh, 
make people see uh, problems uh, another way, just enlighten uh, policies and areas that are such uh, sometimes complex, sometimes hard to debate because they are sometimes taboo. Yeah, well, this is a very interesting and a very good example. I mean, I lived in New York for a number of years, and I remember the discussions that have been taking place there for years regarding the whole approach to the problem of crime in the city, which has, uh, at the time when I lived, actually gone down. Uh, there has been improvement. And the reason, or one of the major factors to that improvement was very similar to what you are explaining. They said, well, you know, we have to understand how it starts, where it starts, and we have to be very early present. We have to be present in the scenes of potential crime or an emerging crime, very, very soon. I mean, they, they said, well, usually the worst crimes take place sometime after 1 a.m. at night. Uh, but if we know that something difficult is emerging and we are there at 10 p.m. the previous evening, then, of course, we have a chance to diffuse the situation. And if something happens, then we are more than quickly there and we can act and so forth. So that was explained as one of the key reasons why uh, the crime in New York City went down. But of course, there is a, a larger philosophy in what you were explaining, and that yes. is the difficulty and the complexity of prevention. Uh, because, uh, of course, there is no such a thing as a perfect prevention. You, you, you know, no, never in life you have a situation where you say, okay, tomorrow that particular thing will happen. So today I do that and therefore tomorrow i will not have that bad thing happening i mean if life was so simple i think we would be, would be yeah <laughs> would be easier so and of course i would like to apply this now to the multilateral level because we have obviously <clears throat> a very similar problem but of course on a very large scale i should not say on a larger scale or more difficult scale, it's, it's different in some ways, but I mean, in essence, the question of acting early, acting in the right way, being able to contribute to prevention of the worst to happen, that, that's really that's really central in, in what we try to do in multilateral cooperation. Absolutely. So, yeah. All right. So now we have a common platform. Now let me tell you a little bit about my background uh, and why I found your example so interesting. You see, uh, I was uh, working for about 40 years with the United Nations in different capacities as NGO representative back in the late 1970s and early 1980s with quite a number of um, indigenous groups from you know, different parts of the world, some of whom became prominent political actors later, decades later. Uh, and then, of course, I was uh, in Slovenia, became independent, uh, the permanent representative to the UN. I served on the Security Council, worked with Kofi Annan as his assistant for political affairs. And there, both in the Security Council and with the Secretary General, we spent much time talking about prevention and what does it take uh, to, 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 you know, to um, pursue the idea of prevention better. Now, <clears throat> there is one thing which we have to clarify right from start. There are no constitutional obstacles there. Mm -hmm. Because you see, the Charter of the United Nations actually encourages preventive posture 
in every respect. I mean, the yeah. whole development and cooperation segment of the charter is really about creating conditions where violent conflicts do not occur or um, are minimized. And then if you go uh, to the purely political uh, side, I mean, the General Assembly, Security Council, the Secretary General, you will find a lot of, a number of platforms, you know, institutional legal platforms from which one could act. And the question then is, well, <laughs> why are the results so meager? Because you, you can't say that there are constraints resulting from the uh, constitutional error or constitutional deficiency. I think that constitutional framework is pretty good. The question is, what is missing here? And of course, this is a question which many people are asking themselves today when the war in Ukraine has gone out of hand and, and, and you know, nobody knows how to come to a point when the war can be stopped. Now, that, that's my background. And of course, we have been doing um, a lot of work in different parts of the world in my UN days and also as Slovenia's president later. One of them was East Timor, where Security Council, together with the Secretary General, took the responsibility for a referendum, which led to declaration of independence. And then, obviously, violence started, but was not um, unmanageable and a peacekeeping operation was introduced fairly quickly. And of course, all that happened at the time and in circumstances of very, uh, which were very special globally. I mean, the convergence among the big powers was such that none of the big powers opposed these um, efforts of the Secretary General, of non-permanent members of the Security Council. And it became possible in 99, in the year 1999, between September and November of that year, to put in place a system which actually prevented further conflict and then led to the declaration of independence, dealing with the issues of crimes and moving East Timor into a state of normalcy. So that, that, that's an example. The question is, how about today? What would you, from your perspective, suggest to the United Nations when you see something like Ukraine, where we see the political dynamics, we see the military dynamics, you certainly have much to say, to say about the uh, social, psychological and other aspects of this. What, what comes to your mind? Sure. So even before entering the Ukraine, I would love to discuss further when we meet. Finally, uh, we also been doing some work on innovation and conflict prevention, mostly in Africa. So I'd love to also would love to hear more about your experience in in, yeah. in Timor. But uh, now to to the I think question of the day, which is uh, surely uh, allowing us not to sleep so well these days. So I think uh, I'll just frame this uh, to see that uh, the Russian-Ukraine war is in a context of this uh, uh, 15 to 20 year global decline of democracy. And most surveys coming out over the past few years suggest that uh, we're not only at a low point in terms of citizens' faith in democratic institutions, but we're also seeing this uh, rise of autocracies, not least in the global south. So I, I think we also have to understand, coming from where I come from, uh, that it's um, not every government sees NATO expansion as improving global peace and security. So there is a legacy of mistrust 
and resistance in many countries across the Americas, Africa and Asia to what they call Western hegemony. And I think this has to be uh, observed. So we see this especially among the BRICS and their positions are shaped by complex historical, political, economic factors that are linked to national interests, not least, I think, to a pursuit of a multipolar world. So that said, uh, we cannot say necessarily that the BRICS are offering a positive force for a more just redistribution of power in the international arena or for reinvigorated multilateralism. To the contrary, I think today they're actually endangering the liberal democratic order. And I think a, a big reason for this comes down to their leadership. And when I say this, I also say uh, not only related to Western values, but uh, for, I mean, I think uh, primarily the, the UN charter. So I think with the exception of South Africa, we have four strongmen in power in the BRICS countries. So Bolsonaro, we have Putin, Modi, and Xi Jinping. Uh, for these leaders, the stakes in Ukraine are very high. So if Putin is successful there, this could validate a more like hard nationalist and authoritarian posture. So if he loses badly, of course, this could embolden the West. But in my, in my view, this could also strengthen uh, multilateralism and the respect uh, to, to what uh, we're talking here about, which would be just a reinvigorated international cooperation, uh, you know, a possibility of, of that really working. So just an example, Bolsonaro visited Putin just days before the invasion uh, and Putin's victory could boost his authoritarian plans. Uh, the same goes for Modi, who is taking a, I believe, a very tough stand against minority populations in India these days. The stakes are probably even highest for China. Uh, and, you know, I'm not going to talk a lot about that. So I think it's important to stress the effects of these wars are going to be felt not, not only in these Western countries, but even more acutely in the BRICS, for instance, who are dependent on a range of commodities, including energy, ore, and food. They're already feeling the pain. So in developing countries, you're seeing rising commodity and food prices. So this hurts the poorest harder since poor households spend a higher proportion of their incomes on fuel and fuel, food. So the effects of the war on the political situation of the BRICS, I'd say it's hard to anticipate because when people are scared, frustrated, angry, this can lead to unpredictable, uh, unpredictable outcomes. And I would say that uh, includes the possibility of reinforcing autocracy. So who uh, I believe also in turn uh, thrive uh, in the manipulation of division and polarization. So I'll stop here just saying that uh, I'm, we have elections in my country this year, in October 2022, Brazil uh, undergoes presidential elections. I'm deeply concerned with the fate of our democracy, which is very much dependent on who wins this year. And I can certainly say that I support uh, the overall mission of Club de Madrid uh, to bolster democratic values. I think uh, I truly believe that a democratic world with all its challenges can deliver better outcomes to the people. Yeah, well, <clears throat> this is a very valid thought, clearly. The kind of regression in democracy is a major contributing factor to many complications that we see, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and I would like to say, obviously, on prevention and various kinds of experience uh, in the United Nations, I'll be very happy to discuss that with you when we meet in New York next week, including on several African situations in situations elsewhere, 
and so forth. But coming back to the to the question of democracy, autocracy, um, the uh, stakes that various actors have in this war and so forth, I would like to draw your and my attention to one aspect which is often not sufficiently uh, elaborated, and that is, um, in especially in Europe, the, the revival of nationalism. Now, nationalism obviously is a powerful ideology and it takes many forms. There is no single model of nationalism. Russian nationalism is different from Ukrainian nationalism and Ukrainian nationalism is different from Hungarian nationalism and Hungarian is different from Slovenian. Not each nationalism is equally dangerous because um, there is uh, there are different amounts of power behind a particular nationalism. But I think that um, in Russia, it's not difficult to recognize the link between the authoritarian development and the kind of a special imperial version of nationalism, which is not new in Russia, which is a complicating factor. And the question of how that could be addressed is an open one. If you look at the Ukrainian side, the situation is also very complicated as a result of nationalism. Uh, I remember a conversation I had with Viktor Yushchenko, a former president of, uh, of Ukraine, at the time when uh, President Zelensky was elected, and asking how does he see his chances, because Zelensky at the beginning said that he wants to make uh, progress with Russia and would like to resolve the problem of Donbas peacefully. And the answer was, well, you know, it's hard to say because Zelensky has a very large party. I, mm -hmm. says Yushchenko, had a much smaller party and had a big opposition of the, in the parliament, so it was very difficult to do anything. Now, Zelensky has a nominal majority in the parliament, but he has a very diverse party. So all the nationalistic elements that were a problem before became a problem within a single party, <laughs> which won election. And of course, they eventually prevailed and they um, uh, made it impossible to make progress on the previous agreements, the Minsk agreements, which existed and which could be a kind of a point of departure for a peaceful solution. Now, it's a complicated thing, which I hope we'll discuss on a further occasion. But I think that we both agree, I mean, the kind of regression of democracy and ideological um, factors that enter this process of weakening democracy, be it either, either strictly authoritarian or with one or another color of nationalist ideology, uh, which we see you know, everywhere practically, also in India and in China, everywhere. Um, you know, that's something to, to, to really give serious thought to and, and see how that can be addressed. But then again, I mean, this is not the only problem uh, when it comes to the question of how can uh, how can multilateral cooperation deliver better? Well, what is the delivery thing there? The thing, <laughs> the delivery. And then, of course, one of the things which we are going to discuss next week is the question of global public goods. And how should the multilateral system operate in order to manage global public goods better for the benefit of the people? This obviously has to do with democracy. This obviously has to do with the effectiveness of international institutions, but with many other things too. So what is your take? 
Sure, and also to the understanding of our interconnectedness and interdependence, which goes back uh, to the question of nationalism. I mean, there are complex issues that we won't solve within our borders, and we know that. So just to start and say, uh, this is a very difficult question, and I, I think we need to dedicate real time and energy to responding it properly. And I hope that we're going to have this time and possibility uh, in our work at the high level advisory board on effective multilateralism. So I really think uh, that's uh, that's a key question for us there. But just a brief, uh, let's say, what comes out of my mind, and as you know, Mr. Turk. Uh, uh, being from from uh, you know the diplomatic world, language matters, and how we frame issues like global public goods, even multilateralism, peace and security, can potentially open or shut doors. So, as a civic entrepreneur myself, focused on many times finding ways to solve problems and impact realities on the ground. I not necessarily uh, working the high standards of diplomacy all the time. So sometimes I also need to be reminded uh, that words count. So. Some countries, as you know, uh, are very wary of calls to protect uh, public goods in the global commons because uh, they fear this, this could leave eventually uh, to like a justification for restrictions on their economic development or encroachments on their sovereignty uh, down the road. And when I interact with diplomats, including with my compatriots, I I kind of have learned many times the hard way that, you know, what I just said that every word counts. So I believe, first of all, we need to listen to these concerns, build trust, because this is a commodity that uh, is really rare today to find the common ground. And sometimes, you know, we won't call words, uh, you know, we'll find new words, but we need to think about solutions. And I think we have to build this common oh. ground. So how to move to that, in my view? So first, honestly, uh, we believe to build trust in our uh, international, uh, we need to build trust in our international institutions from the bottom up. What I see is that citizens need to be called upon to re-engage. And why that? Because it comes to my second point. We know that the form, function, legitimacy of our multilateral institutions are profoundly shaped by domestic politics, especially in democracies. So where we have a more literate and engaged public, we're more likely to see alignment in foreign policy and multilateral action. So the example of climate change uh, and objectives like decarbonization or net zero deforestation is a good one. So where we have a domestic public that is concerned with the issue, they tend to push the governments for international engagement, as it is in the case, for example, of take Norway, Ireland, or Costa Rica. So with the citizenry behind them, these countries are able to speak up build coalitions in the global arena. And my third point would be, uh, our current multilateral frameworks, as we, as we know well, need to be upgraded to address what we're calling today systemic and compounded risks. Like we're just out of a two-year pandemics, a climate crisis uh, there, uh, you know, many other political issues that are just really making things, I would say, hard uh, if we don't think in a systemic way. So I think starting within the UN, so for example, the Vito Initiative, I believe it's an important call to shared responsibility and it has to be seen as just the start. Uh, our best chance uh, to leave a hospitable planet for the next generations is, is if we recognize that global cooperation needs to be multi-stakeholder. So starting from the UN, we cannot stop there. 
what our fellow board member, Anne-Marie Slaughter, describes as networked multilateralism. We need to find out how to put this like into practice because we will only be able to address our biggest uh, public good challenges if we start working really in partnerships. And this means even unleashing the incredible innovation and capital of the private sector, of course, also means leveraging the pragmatism, experimentation and scale of cities, as well as working with coalitions of civic leaders, impact philanthropists. So I do believe, believe that only if we're able to mobilize these different constellations of actors, we'll be able to make real progress in our, our I'd say, intractable problems. Uh, it won't be easy, but I don't believe we have another choice. Yeah, well, I think that the question of global warming has already come to a point when people are taking that as their cause. You see, again, uh, from my past experience, uh, I lived through an era where people took human rights as their cause. That was that was the situation in you know late 70s and throughout 1980s. And that produced huge social change and political change in East Europe, in Latin America, in South Africa. So it became a global process. And that, of course, led further to uh, you know, spreading of democ political democracy and other phenomena, which started to weaken you know, very soon after, of course. But I mean, the process of change really became possible when people take a cause as their own. And here I fully agree. And, and as I look around today, it is not human rights anymore like it was 40 years ago. Uh, it is now climate change, it's global warming. That's the cause that can make big changes. And I'm not saying this lightly because I'm very proud of what was achieved with human rights. I remember, you know, on indigenous rights as a part of the bigger human rights um, program. Uh, when the UN started to uh, to to discuss issues based on on a study by Willems and Diaz, um, um, uh, you know, an expert who wrote huge volumes on the subject, <clears throat> we started with practically no international understanding, and then people came to a brilliant idea that we should have a, an indigenous forum at the time of one of the human rights bodies. Mm -hmm. Now that indigenous forum became very big and there were like two to 300 indigenous representatives from all over the world that used to come. And their networking was not so much about talking to UN experts and diplomats. It was to talking among themselves, learning from each other, building political movements that they brought back home and produced change. In some of the more um, progressive, so to speak, governments, they realize that it makes sense to send their uh, political representatives to Geneva for that indigenous forum because they could meet with the indigenous representatives somewhere in a restaurant or in a hotel or whatever, far away from their media at home. <laughs> and talk about issues that needed to be resolved at home. So when you talk about networking, we, we have examples from the past when networking actually happened 
and help producing big change. But it was not the uh, it was not only limited to multilateral world, although it helped, mm -hmm. and it took a lot of time. We are talking about years and decades in these matters. Now, of course, we don't have many decades available for yeah. warming, uh, but I think we know basically from the past that this direction actually does work. Now we have to figure out, all right, what are the modalities? What more can we do? Is COP uh, meeting every year a sufficient platform? Do we need something more, something else to, to kind of strengthen the process? That's what I would, uh, would say. And then finally, the temporal dimension. We are now approaching the year 2030. Well, we're not quite there yet, but it's not very far away either. And I wonder what is your what is your thought if you look at this entire experience and your your work in different um, areas uh, in a in a in a sense of a time frame. Uh, how when would you like to see results? How would you relate this to this? somewhat artificial timeframes that the UN has established, you know, the sustainable development goals, agenda 2030, all this is based on assumptions which are no longer uh, realistic. What is your sense of temporal um, element in, in, in everything that we are discussing? Yeah, I, this is a, a fascinating question because I've been thinking a lot uh, and devoting time to the question of the Amazon forest in Brazil, for instance. And there, scientists are telling us that uh, we are really near a tipping point, that if we don't stop destroying the forest, the forest will become a savanna and, you know, unable to, to rejuvenate. And this will affect, you know, uh, for example, rain cycles uh, across the Americas, uh, of course, will release uh, incredible amount of carbon into the atmosphere, just adding instead of helping to prevent global warming, but adding uh, to global warming. This for Brazil and other countries that are, uh, let's say, food baskets in my region would be a disaster because we are very lucky to have several crops in one year, given our rain, our soil, and these would be totally disrupted. And uh, so I feel an urgency that I didn't feel before. And this, to be honest, even helped, uh, helped uh, ourselves within my organization to, to devote our newest program is on climate and security. So we also opened the whole uh, area because we know it's so urgent. And when we see the impacts of the pandemics uh, into the SDGs, for example, uh, and, and now right, uh, uh, we know that this will be aggravated uh, with the war in Ukraine, uh, in terms of the, the, let's say, supply chain disruptions, the increasing prices, uh, uh, increasing inequality. So I'm, uh, I, I, as I said in the beginning, I can't say I'm sleeping well these days. And I, I have to say, I do have hope because there are many uh, coalitions being built and in the way that we have, of course, to make them work better, more effective. But we've never seen uh, I think the the amount of actors, the different kinds of actors, be private sector, be civil society and governments and citizens united for a cause. And then I would say your human rights uh, um, lens is very much present in the climate justice movement, which I think uh, uh, it's not uh, uh, it's not to be taken for granted. There is a lot of work 
there, you know, uh, that started uh, uh, many decades ago that is impacting also the lands uh, uh, in this cause. Um, but it's not enough, as we know, the commitments to date will not save us from the worst. And I think it's not ourselves, it's the next uh, generations, the young people and that the next to come. So I'm a, I'm in a heightened, like a state of, uh, I can say anxiety, uh, but uh, of like, a, we have to do it. And uh, my hope, uh, uh, just I'll stop here, but I came from like a, in February and March, I had the opportunity to spend three, three weeks traveling um, in the Amazon, in the Brazilian side of the Amazon forest in different places. And I met many, many different, uh, you know, people from the ground. And my hope there is in the strength and eloquence and possibility of like a articulation that the women indigenous groups yeah. are having at the moment. And uh, I, I will tell you more about that when we meet, but uh, I got, you know, my faith renewed uh, through their work. And I just feel that we need to, add to their voices as well. Yeah, well, look, the fundamental realization from the past is when people take a cause as their own, well, they can change things. And the important thing is to come to a point when this happens, and it, it is happening. For example, we have elections in Slovenia um, on Sunday, that is, uh, well, in a couple of days from now, and the key question that has emerged this time is the nexus between energy, climate, and the environment more broadly, because people more and more realize how important it is for development in the future, and that they have to figure out solutions which are not immediate, but which are urgent. I mean, everybody understands that these things cannot be changed overnight, but unless we take the right decisions now, we are going to have huge problems in a few years. So that's a kind of um, realization which didn't exist before. I mean, when I was president, I remember I was um, uh, campaigning in 20, uh, 2007, and I wanted to make a big press conference about these issues because that was about the time when the uh, first report of the International Panel on Climate Change came out. And I said, look, this is very important. Let's talk about this in the context of elections. Only two or three journalists came. <laughs> Nobody cared. Wow. I mean, that was in Slovenia. Of course, it may have been different in other places. But in, in our place, that was not yet uh, the case. But today, this is problem number one. This is actually motivating young people who are very passive until recently. Uh, it, it's motivating them very strongly. And they have this incredible, um, incredible ability uh, to bring their parents and grandparents into the into the process. So, so you need a constituency which can grow from somewhere and give them an opportunity to, to kind of grab a cause and, and, and go with it. I mean, of course, the question is, you know, what do think tanks, what do um, kind of mad, change managers, what do other people do to make this easier? But, but it is bound to happen. And I have one final question, and, and again, in the same context, you see, it is easy, not, not easy, it is kind of urgent to realize how important the issues of climate and their effects are, and how important it is to bring them 
to the people in a way which would then allow them to to organize to define the agenda to 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 really be the the kind of the subject of change the the, the agent of change that's that's true but then there is an aspect which we have neglected especially now in this last few decades where we lived under the influence of what is called the neoliberal economic thought uh, and that is the question of um, uh, social cohesion, social justice, social fairness. I mean, this has been neglected. If we look at the elections in France now, we see that uh, one of the leading two candidates made big progress um, by pointing to the question of social justice and fairness in the country. And the other candidate who may probably win, who neglected that, before is now taking it more seriously. Uh, we in Club de Madrid have been worried about this for a long time, and we proposed the World Social Summit to take place. And we are very glad to see that the Secretary General has accepted the idea, put it in his Our Common Agenda approach uh, report for 2025. Uh, now, there was such a summit in 1995, and that helped building the Millennium Development Goals, Sustainable Development Goals, and everything else. Uh, now, my question to you is, um, uh, what do you see, think about that social dimension and the possibility for a multilateral organization, especially United Nations, to help establishing a framework for policy making for the future? What, what is your take in that regard? Perfect. Well, I, I, I couldn't agree more with the urgency of uh, trying to build again social cohesion and uh, let's say uh, truth. Uh, we have to agree on facts, but I would just like to take this into context and start with the, just to re, like reinforce some of the bad news that we've been talking here, because then just getting to the urgent of uh, why would the World Social Summit be so important? So I, I you know, we see that we're gonna have a very difficult five to 10 years ahead of us. So even before the Russian Ukraine war, so we faced serious geopolitical challenges. Uh, in an increasingly like multipolar world, we also facing uh, what we call economic uh, decoupling. You know, this was sped up uh, during COVID. The supply chain vulnerabilities became more apparent. But making matters worse, we're also facing the risk of digital fragmentation. Uh, when you think about uh, countries like China, Russia, and then the West would have to essentially create their own internet. Uh, adding to this what we are just speaking before, like the rising incidence of climate shocks and stresses. So we are at a very dangerous juncture in the history of our civilization. And we also just touched to say that uh, all these major global challenges uh, basically uh, stalled progress on the 17 SDGs. So we're seeing rising inequalities between, but also within countries, and the whole range of uh, human development indicators going into reverse. So, uh, you know, the war is just already making a, a bad problem worse, let's, let's say like that. And right now, there's not just challenges uh, for the global south, but also for the northern countries. So people are growing increasingly frustrated, afraid, angry. And I think this is further dividing our populations, undermining our democracies, fueling autocracy. And uh, the risk is that we enter negative feedback 
like feedback loops. I think there, uh, the more we see setbacks in the SDGs, uh, the more it reinforces regressive politics, instability, uh, climate inaction, and so on. So we urgently need a, a way out. So as I know that the Club de Madrid uh, supported and in introduced um, uh, strongly this idea of a, of a World Social Summit, I couldn't uh, welcome more and just say that uh, this is uh, a way uh, to put all these priorities uh, that we are mentioning. And we have the roadmap, so we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We need to shore up the SDGs. Uh, they are more important now than they've ever been. Uh, we don't need to reinvent the rules, but I think we have to upgrade uh, the lens of some SDGs, uh, uh, perhaps including a digital dimension about uh, all these issues because of the, the increasing dig digitalization that we're, we're seeing. Uh, and we need to boost, of course, multi-stakeholder commitments and participations to deliver on them. Uh, second, I would say we need to be uh, really more effective uh, in how to deliver. So I believe that key for achieving the SDGs and the Paris agreements uh, is uh, what the Secretary General also called a new social contract that puts citizens and uh, will really uh, depend on civic action at the core. So I, I see the success of the Summit of the Future and of the World Social Summit as, as part of the goals for our work at the High Level Advisory Board on effective multilateralism. Like we need to, to prepare the ground for that, to listen to people. And there were several uh, consultations undertaken uh, by the UN, my organization also helped to, to do a, a, a big digital consultation that informed the, our common agenda report. So listening to the people's uh, uh, needs, proposals, uh, and I would say using the roadmaps we have already, but then upgrading them just to meet the challenges of the day, uh, I think that uh, that's the, the only way. And we have a, a big job in front of us uh, at the advisory board and i'm very glad to to share this table with you and with a very inspiring group of people uh, because we have a big responsibility so i would say good luck for us because we really need to get this job done we need to improve the deliverables of the sdgs of the paris agreements targets uh, and with the people-centered like centered approach very good. Well, I couldn't agree more. And I think that we all need a little bit of luck in our work in order to make real progress. And I hope we'll have opportunities to discuss uh, these issues, not only in the board, in the board meeting, but also outside. And maybe we can use some of the technology to promote or to deepen a discussion on a particular issue among particular members of the board. I mean, that could be a process that can know several forms. It doesn't have to be limited to the meetings of, of the board. Uh, and I say so because I clearly see that it is possible to agree on the objectives and uh, on, on, on urgency, on the need to develop the mechanisms better. And here, when, you talk, when one talks about mechanisms, we have a lot of work to do because obviously the intergovernmental mechanisms have a <clears throat> certain range of possibilities. They are not, you know, that, that's not um, uh, without limitations. Uh, one 
can easily get into a discussion about sovereignty and how much of what belongs to national institutions, how much of the same belongs to an international sphere, how much of that belongs to civil society work and so forth. So, I mean, we have to really be very careful and imaginative and hopefully effective in defining the mechanisms that could help moving uh, our you know, agenda further. Uh, we have our common agenda prepared by the Secretary General, which is already a very good document. We don't need to have another one uh, of the same kind. We need to do something more. So in this spirit, um, I would like to thank you for participating in this discussion with us in Club de Madrid. I would be very happy to continue and have occasional exchanges, perhaps on a more clearly defined or more narrowly defined question or questions. Uh, and hopefully we can then, without reinventing the wheel, invent a few innovations, innovative mechanisms. I couldn't agree more. And I would say we, we need to be bold in a vision. We can't be afraid of setting new visions, even if we don't have the, the pathway so clear, because for sure what we have today will not be enough just to, to deal and to take into account all the, let's say, all the challenges uh, that we have. But we also didn't have the knowledge, the tools, even the capital that uh, uh, we have today at the disposal to solve problems. So let us be bold, uh, keep the pragmatism, but let us not be skeptical that we can find uh, new ways, better ways, and ways that are just fit for meeting the challenges of the moment. So thank you so much, Daniel. It was wonderful talking to you and looking forward just to continue this conversation. Thank you very much, Ilona, and I look forward to meeting you in person also. Next the week. same. <laughs>